Hey, we'd like to welcome you back to our current event and weekly Bible study for November 16th, 2008. And we're going to be continuing the study on the Antichrist, examining if Obama could be the coming Antichrist. So now we're going to examine the subject of the Antichrist of Matthew 24. At this point, Jesus suddenly begins speaking in verse 15 of the Antichrist going into the temple, obviously the rebuilt third temple, and desecrating it so thoroughly that he creates the abomination that makes desolate. God is so angry after this blasphemous act and the speech within the Holy of Holies that he begins to pour out his wrath anew and with greater intensity. The abomination will occur at the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation period, day number 1260. Okay, 1260. So again, in that verse reads, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, we, we quoted all these verses previously in the study, by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy, holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Goes on to give issue some warnings after that. For some reason, Jesus Christ skips over the appearance of the Antichrist in Matthew 24. The, in other words, the initial appearance. However, he tells us about the appearance of the man of sin in Revelation 6, 1 through 2. And then I saw, then quoting, and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, a noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. This is the moment of the appearance of the Antichrist in Matthew 24. Um, well, actually, but it's not detailed in Matthew. Therefore, his appearance will be preceded by an intensification of the birth pangs of Matthew 24, 6-7. In the time period immediately preceding his appearance, the world is going to experience all these foretold birth pangs in strongest possible intensity. And again, this is what we're seeing now. We're, we're seeing this right now, even with the, you can equate this with the economy as well. Okay. Therefore, we should expect wars and rumors of wars. The highest possible degree, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Once again, the idiomatic phrase indicates a war between two local powers in which other powers jump in, supporting the original two combatants, so that a much larger conflict uh, instantly breaks forth. In this case, we see the New World Order plan to start a war between Israel and the Palestinians, in which both sides will receive allies, resulting in World War III. This is the most likely scenario, and I agree with them in this, and I've done several teachings on this. Just key in WW3, uh, World War III, um, search box, or Iraq, or Israel, and you, you can get to these. The Illuminati has been planning World War III since year 1870, and again, this has to do with Albert Pike's vision that he received, and we talked about him earlier. Uh, they talk about this in News Report uh, 1056 and 1057 through Cutting Edge. So literally, out of the smoke, destruction, and death caused by World War III, Antichrist will come striding, displaying enormously effective lying signs and wonders. He's going to come as the man of peace. Through peace, he's going to destroy wonderfully, it says. Okay? So again, it's, it's, but it's a false piece. It's a deceptive piece. But see, that's what everybody's looking for. They're going to be desperate for that one thing, and that's peace. Well, he's going to fill the bill and supply it. Since 9-11, the Illuminous nations have been invading other nations with regularity and threaten many others with regularity. Famines will occur as a result of this war, probably in third world countries. Much of the famine may be the result of the coming third world war. Earthquakes can now be created by HARP, and scalier electromagnetic technology, they've, they've got, uh, looks like, seven news reports where they get into how this is possible now. I also get into this uh, in 
um, my teaching on the avian flu, where they've openly admitted, our government's openly admitted, that they can control earthquakes, tidal waves, um, hurricanes, and things of this nature. And this is what they admitted to back in the early 70s. So you can imagine what the technology is like now. Now remember, the Lord Jesus Christ is still in control. Okay, but they do have the technology available to them. So, the next question, is Senator Barack Obama the Messiah, or at least a Messiah-type figure? Um, So, is Barack Obama the biblical Antichrist? He certainly has run a Messianic-type campaign, meaning like like he's the Messiah, with numerous people noting a certain unexplainable charisma emanating from this Illinois senator, a spiritual type of feeling which they cannot explain, even though they are dramatically drawn to it. The question is popping up a lot more with regularity these days, and it seems to tie in with the occult theme that we've already noted. This is a news brief article from Ben Shapiro of Town Hall, January 31st of of 2007. This was quite a while ago, and it, it was entitled, Is Barack Obama the Messiah? They were already starting to ask this question almost two years ago. Apparently, Senator Barack Obama is the Messiah. Jesus didn't get this kind of Sunday media coverage on Ishtar Sunday. I added the Ishtar. Is it? It is no wonder that Slate.com has running has a running Obama Messiah watch dedicated to considering evidence that Obama is the Son of God. What an abomination! Oh, abomination! Sorry, little pun there. Now, this is the kind of rhetoric which should cause Bible-believing Christians to sit up and take notice. At the end of this age, Jesus firmly warned us to expect false Christs, false political leaders. You mean that could come in that form? and false prophets, false religious leaders, at the end of the age, uh, where he said in Matthew 24, 4 and 5, Take heed that no man deceive you. Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. 24, 24, we've already read these. For there shall arise many false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. So I was really expecting there to be some lying signs and wonders with Obama's campaign. And there was. People were getting healed. People were getting mesmerized and hypnotized and, you know, under his spell. So, Barack Obama is causing many people to want to follow him simply because he is exuding exuding some sort of mysterious power which draws them to this man. Uh, Then we have Deepak Chopra, who is a major New Age author and lecturer, and he said that, regarding Obama, that he is a quantum leap in American consciousness. It is a highly significant that Obama is suddenly the darling of a person like Deepak Chopra. New Age adherents have been looking for a Messiah figure for a very long time. The fact that he is so enthusiastic about Obama is very telling as to the kind of eclectic power which he is exuding. I mean, notice the people that are drawn to this guy. Rabid New Agers, the most liberal of the liberals, the the pro-abortion fanatics, the pro-homosexual, transgendered lesbian community in the droves, I mean... Obviously, all you got to do is look at who's drawn to him. So, New Agers believe that just before the New Age Christ appears, mankind will have passed through a quantum leap of consciousness. You hear a lot about this, that like Mother Earth and all this stuff that you know, 2012, and and all this garbage about how we're going to make this con- conscious leap in in our, our evolution as humanity, and the Ascended Masters are watching over this in their spaceships, and, and they're, they're orchestrating this whole thing because, hey, they created us anyway. This is what they say. 
through the what, what they call the ancient astronaut theory, where they come and they seeded our planet millions and millions of possibly billions of years ago, and we are their little science project, and now we're ready to take our next evolutionary step. Okay, because remember, they they they've even they're they're um you know this is just another evolutionary step for us as mankind next phase to godhood essentially is what they're talking about here it's the same lie that satan told eve in the garden of eden you shall be as gods it's the same repackaged lie that we're getting from these devils okay who are channeling through very many people and psychics and mediums and mystics and and all the stuff so and people that are you know in the abduction scenarios they're getting told the same thing so anyway just something to look at there so the Okay, so then the next point we can look at, um, we are the ones, okay, so this is from Obama. He said this on Super Tuesday. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. What an arrogant, unbelievably, sinfully proud statement that is. We are the ones we've been waiting for? (laughs) We are the change that we seek? Man, alive, you talk about self-centered pride there. The only thing that we can give ourselves is death and hell, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But according to Obama, that's not the case. So the major themes from Obama are deceptively short and very useful as mass propaganda. Number one, keep it simple. And number two, repeat the same short message or mantra over and over. These are very two effective techniques in the deception of the masses, Obama repeats just a few mantras over and over again and does so as some kind of occult power emanates from his voice and his body. Of whom a man owes overcome, the same he has brought into bondage. Okay, then we look at some readers. Okay, this is from, not sure what, okay, this is from the late folklorist Joseph Campbell. And he says, some readers understood right away what I meant last week when I said that John McCain has the misfortune to be running against Luke Skywalker of the Star Wars fame, okay? Obama's myth is tried and true. The late folklorist Joseph Campbell called it the hero's journey and found it in every culture, from Odessa to Luke Skywalker to Frodo and Harry Potter. Oh, how appropriate there. Halle Berry, I guess the famous actress, says, I'll do whatever he says. I'll collect paper cups off the ground to make his pathway clear. This is coming from a absolutely self-absorbed Hollywood starlet. And she's saying, I'll clear cups off the ground and make his path clear. Uh, Then we've got Eve Constantine, and she says, Barack Obama is our collective representation of our purest hopes. What a sick, disgusting thing to say. Our highest visions and our deepest knowings. He is our product out of all-knowing quantum field of intelligence. Our purest hopes, would that include the most rabid pro-abortion, baby-slaughtering agenda that any presidential candidate has ever known? Or the most rabidly homosexual-supporting, Sodom and Gomorrah-life lifestyle, loving agenda that any of, of any um, American senator on record, as far as his voting record goes? That's what she considers this to be our purest hopes and our highest visions. The Bible says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, and bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And that's exactly what you're doing when you support Obama. You're calling something totally, purely evil good. The next quote from a guy named Chris Matthews, he says, This is bigger than Kennedy, like JFK. This is the New Testament. 
I felt this thrill going up my leg. I mean, I don't have that too often. No, seriously, it's a dramatic event. So he had some thrill going up his leg. Can you imagine when the Antichrist comes with all lying signs and wonders? Okay, and he's able to call fire down from heaven? We haven't even seen any of that yet. You think the deception's bad now? But you know what? This shouldn't dissuade you. All this should do is get you fired up. Because it's so obvious now, the line's so been drawn in the sand, that it's becoming more and more flagrantly obvious what is the side of evil and what is the side of good. I think it's good, in a way. I mean, I would rather it be black and white than have all this lukewarm garbage mixed in the center, and I think that's why God's permitting this to happen. Because you're, there's going to come a point when all these Christians are going to have to finally decide to choose whom this day you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, as Joshua said. So I think that's why God's permitting this to happen. It's part of the strong delusion, but it's a sifting process as well, a sorting out process. He said everything that can be shaken will be shaken. If it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. That is this process. This is the process of being tried um, and, and to see who really has discernment and who doesn't. Who has their eyes anointed with eye salve that they can actually see? Who is actually going to be destroyed for lack of knowledge? Okay, And who's not going to be? A lot of things to, to actually look at here when, when we see all these events unfolding. Um, so then, this is from Ezra Clean, and this person says, Obama's finest speeches do not excite, they do not inform, they don't even really inspire, they elevate. He is, he is not the word made flesh, but the triumph of word over flesh. Obama is, at his best, able to call us back to our highest selves. Notice everything about worshiping and adoring Obama is all self-centered. It's all self-centered. Yes, we're concentrating on Obama. He is our self-centered example. Okay? He is our self-centered Messiah-type figure that we can fixate and focus on and believe whatever comes out of his lying, deceitful mouth. He's probably got frogs coming out of his mouth just like the false prophet and the beast. Okay, and the Antichrist. Probably got the same ones if the truth be known. And then we have Gerald Campbell, and he says Obama has the capacity to summon heroic forces. You know, you know where we get the word heroic, and um, the the word that was um, actually her heroic was actually um, this is where we get the name for heroin, okay, the drug heroin. Because when they were experimenting with this drug, the drug companies were, and I covered this in my pharmacia thing. They were actually asking the people, okay. Well, well, how does this drug make you feel when you take it, okay? Because it was an opium-based drug that they were experimenting with. And they said, well, I feel like a heroine from some, like, Teutonic legend or something, you know, where I'm marching and I'm, I'm, I'm and now you have these shows on TV on um, Hollywood that they're putting on, like heroes, where you've got these unsaved, ungodly, one of them is a porn star cam girl, and there are heroes. They're here to save humanity. So we've got some porno star that's going to be able to save humanity through her heroic powers, and it's called Heroes. And it's like supposedly good versus evil, and no, it's not. It's like black and white witchcraft. It's all evil. Okay, so there's so much wickedness on TV. Even even turning on the nightly news or something, you've got all the pharmaceutical commercials telling you, you know, if you take this drug, it may kill you. But, you know, but then they show these happy little wonderful whimsical things in the background, and you're frolicking in the meadows, and stuff of this nature. And, you know, you take it, but you may kill you. But, you know, or it may give you cancer or some other thing. And it's pharmacy, and there's probably a big, uh, big fat demon that comes with this prescription. 
And I've covered that in the whole pharmacia teaching. But it's okay. We want to get you fully medicated. We want to get you really, really dumbed down. We want to really get you dependent on these drugs because they're all habit forming. And we want you to, and then you get all the stuff on the nightly news, all the lies that pour forth about Obama and this or that or, or whatever current situation. And we're really trying to fix the economy. It's just pure lies. What you're getting on TV is such propaganda. It's only getting worse. So anyway, um, it's like, it, it, we were just talking about this earlier. I, I really, it's like living in this world. It's that verse where it talks about where Lot vexed his righteous soul from day to day with all the wicked deeds that he observed in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what life is, I really feel like, in America in particular. I'm sure there's other parts of the world that aren't as, aren't as corrupted as, as America and these types of things. And maybe there's some that are worse. But it, it really is like living in Sodom and Gomorrah anymore. In this, and particularly in America, that is how it's, and it's more, it's more repugnant to me every day I live in it. It's more, I just want to get away from it. I just don't even want to be here. I, I just, I have no desire for, for this world. I don't want a big house. I don't want a fancy car. I don't want any of that material stuff that's going to weigh me down. I just don't desire. I mean, really mean that. I don't want it. To me, it's bondage. And it's just something they can take away from you anyway. So anyway, uh, going further, then Oprah Winfrey, we want to make sure we quote her. Uh, she says, we're here to evolve to a higher plane. What, a higher plane of hell? Because I know hell has different levels. Oh, sorry. Anyway, we're here to evolve to a higher plane. Then, speaking of Obama, he is an evolved leader. Now, many people, I've read what the supposed Zetas are saying about him. The great, the little, You know what the Zetas are? They're the gray aliens. From Zeta Reticuli. But see, they channel through a lot of people. And there's people up there. Like this one lady, she has a, a little thing she puts out called Zeta Talk. And she communicates directly with these Zeta spirits and channels through them. And they've called Obama a, a wonderful old soul. A star child. That was their exact words, okay? So they referred to him as a highly evolved old soul or a star child. He's been through many reincarnation patterns and of all this garbage. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. Okay, so this garbage about reincarnation and all the stuff you see on TV, like with that show... Um, Ghost Whisper and all these other shows where they go into these haunted houses and they communicate with these spirits of the dead and all these spirits are saying, yeah, well, I was jilted in this former life and I was murdered and I'm here because I can't go on to the light anymore. Or the ghost whisperer that talks to all these ghost people that are supposedly here but they just can't pass over to the other side yet because they have unresolved visits. You know what? We don't get to choose when we die where we go. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. Okay, that is it. There is only two choices. We don't just get to hang around if we want to. Those spirits that they're talking to them are lying, deceiving, familiar spirits that were familiar with the patterns of that person when they lived. And that's how they manifest to these psychics and mediums that go into these houses. And they deceive and they lie. And if you believe that garbage, what happens is, is you think, well, the Bible can't be true because they're hanging around and these are, these are evil spirits and they're not even in hell. It's not how it works. Not how it works at all. So, again, the spirit of that person either goes to heaven or hell. Okay? But the spirits that were possessing that person when they lived, or the familiar spirits that were very familiar with their patterns, they still get to hang around here until the judgment, until they're cast into the lake of fire. So, just all that, and I've done several studies on that subject as well that you can access.
Um, so she says, Oprah, um, who has just been absolutely just sickening static over this whole thing with Obama and, and just, just, just the biggest sis boom ba rah 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 fan that she well, I mean she should come out with some pom poms and a mini skirt as bad as she's been since Obama got elected. It's 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 just sickening. Okay? And she says we're we're here to evolve to a higher plane. He is an evolved leader, Obama. He has an ear for eloquence and a tongue dipped in the unvarnished truth. No, can I rephrase that? I, I really kinda wanted to rephrase that. She should have said that he has a forked tongue dipped in the poison of asps, like the Bible talks about, the poison of asps, because he has a forked tongue. He is of his father, the devil. The only thing that Obama is missing is a pitchfork and a pointy tail. That's basically what my opinion is of him. Hey, it's a free country, so we can still voice our opinions, right? Well, probably not too much longer. Probably not too much longer. Unless the Lord intervenes, we're not going to have the right to say this type of stuff anymore. I'm basing this biblically on this man's actions. On the last, but the Bible says, by, by their fruit you shall know them. Well, I've examined Obama's rotten fruit, and that's why I say that. Not because I'm trying to slander anybody. I'm basing it off biblical fact. So, again, um, you know, all he's really lacking is the pitchfork, the, 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 the pointy red tail, and, and a couple cloven hooves sticking out the bottom of his pant legs. That would really complete the bill. At least then we would we would have a better idea of who he really is. But he's he's of his father the devil, and uh, the Bible talks about the serpent being the most subtle beast of the field. And when I see Obama, that's what I see—a very very subtle beast of the field. And then this is another uh, quote from Bill Rush. He said, "I would characterize the Senate race as being a race where Obama was, let's say, blessed and highly favored." That's not routine. There's something else going on. I think that Obama, his election to the Senate was divinely ordered. How sickening. I know that that's God's plan. Well, yeah, maybe the God of this world, the prince and the power of the air, Satan, Lucifer, sure, that was, that was Satan's plan. And granted, yes, God is on the throne, and yes, he did permit it to happen, and yes, it's part of the strong delusion, okay, that they will believe a lie, that they might all be damned to receive not the love of the truth. Okay, this is the separating process, but this is how deluded and deceived these people are. They're equating this man with something highly divine and ordered, and that their God has preordained. But they, whether they're aware of it or not, they're serving Satan. And most of them, um, I think a great many of these ones, particularly at the higher levels and echelons, are very aware of who they're serving. So obviously these quotes make Obama sound like a man imbued with natural, supernatural power, and the kind of messianic figure the world so desperately wants. Now listen to some of the quotes from his website. Quote, the Obama campaign uses a religious calling as its central rhetorical trope, where he says, I'm asking you to believe. Reads the banner across the top of BarackObama.com. His appeal to voters is an archetype of religious conversion. Instead of being asked for support, Americans are exhorted to join the movement. In Georgia, he directly equated his supporters with God's people. Well, again, his God, sure. Little G, not big G, Satan. Here's a news brief that was entitled, We Are the Chosen Ones, a new hymn for Barack Obama. The Telegraph, this was in London, March 6, 2008. This was March 6, this was a ways back. And it quotes from this article saying, The similarities between Obamian hope and the biblical hope are extraordinary. 
quote. We could go on and on listing more instances of messianic type or biblical type language. If you want to continue the search, uh, you can go to, uh, they have an article, Is Barack Obama the Messiah? Webs- they have their own website um, for that. You can do a keyword search. And again, please don't get wrapped up in that too much because it's just a bunch of garbage. Now let us return to the town hall resource we quoted from earlier for the final statement, which leads us to the next story. And quoting from that, we read, What is more, Obama knows they are empty promises in the war between traditionalism and radicalism. Obama stands solidly with radicalism. Though he has a gift for obscuring his positions, just like the devil would, Obama is an advocate of gay rights, a strong believer in the concept of private property as social property. In other words, he doesn't believe in private property. An abortion-on-demand fanatic... His pledge to move beyond the politics of the 1960s is a pledge to achieve unity in the fully triumphant program of the 1960s. You know, make love, not war, the whole rock and roll thing type of deal. Well, so if Obama is the Messiah, he is a secular Messiah. Now, this is what this town hall resource said about it. Yeah, he's a secular Messiah. He's a worldly. He is a false Christ. He's one of the many false Christs that are actually here and that are coming. Okay, and, and I don't think we've seen anything yet. And now, we have the black charismatic leader, Louis Farrakhan, well, he's, and he's a Muslim, uh, has endorsed Seren- Seren- uh, Senator Barack Obama's Messiah. So, th- that was on YouTube. You can go up there, here. Louis Farrakhan calls on Obama the Messiah. You can go up there and do a keyword search. Uh, he also said that, Farrakhan said that on Obama, that the Messiah is absolutely speaking. Um... Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, another powerful Chicago-based political figure associated with the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, and other longtime associates of the Democratic Party. Presidential candidate Barack Obama is leaving no doubt what he thinks about the leader in the campaign for White House. He says Obama talks, when Obama talks, the Messiah is absolutely speaking, end of quote. Farrakhan, Senator Obama, is the Messiah, which literally means the one who appears with great power and charisma to lead his people out of bondage and into the light of freedom and prosperity, But that is not enough for the genuine Bible-believing Christians, is it? The Messiah, whom we are expecting, is the biblical Messiah, which we Christians know to be Jesus Christ. Dressing a loud or large crowd behind a podium on February 24th with a Nation of Islam Saviors banner, 2008 sign behind him. How blasphemous can you get there? Farrakhan proclaims, you are the instruments that God is going to use to bring about universal change. Remember, no, it's all about you, you, you. I, I, I. That's what all this is about. It's the same for the very, very first sin of the Bible. When Satan fell, he said, I will ascend under the sides of the earth. I will be like the Most High. It's always about me. And that's why, that's pride, that's self-centered arrogance. You know, gets you into trouble every time. Uh, so... Farrakhan says, you are the instruments that God is going to use to bring about universal change, and that is why Barack Obama has captured the youth. And he has involved young people in the political process that they didn't care anything about before. Hitler did the same thing. He said, that's a sign. When the Messiah speaks, the youth will hear, and the Messiah is absolutely speaking. The words of universal change are common in New Age literature, speaking of the coming Antichrist. In fact, these words are used so much that they should rightly be considered, quote, buzzwords. Whenever Farrakhan used these words to describe Obama, he was casting the New Age specter of the coming Antichrist upon his listeners. Now notice that Lewis is promising better things to come. Another New Age messianic concept. He says, brothers and sisters, Barack Obama to me is a herald of Messiah. Barack Obama is like the trumpet 
that alerts you to something new, something better is on the way. I believe he is an he is a antichrist that is going to be preparing the way for the antichrist. The mindset that people are going to have to have to have to accept the antichrist is is what Barack Obama is preparing culture for. Now, here's another thing. When the Antichrist makes his appearance, if you've got a lot of people that revere other people in the world, like the Pope, like Barack Obama, like Oprah, or whoever else may be your respective idol, and all of a sudden they collectively point their finger to the Antichrist, well, you're going to be saying, well, wow, I followed them like a god, and now they're saying this is the real god. Or this is the real Messiah. I'm going to have to really look at this closely. Now, he's going to come with all lying signs and wonders and miracles, so it's not going to take a whole lot for people to buy into this hook, line, and sinker, particularly when he has the highest endorsements of the secular world behind him. That's how it's going to go down, almost guaranteed. I mean, this is just common sense here. So, World Daily Net article then reports other times when Senator Obama has been campaigning as a Messiah figure. World Daily Net reported a website... That's called, um, is, is Barack Obama the Messiah? Captured the wave of euphoria that followed the Democratic Senator's remarkable rise. The site is topped by an Obama quote strategically ripped from a January 7th speech at Dartmouth College just before, um, cut off there. Oh, just before the New Hampshire primary. Uh, in which he told the Dartmouth students, Dartmouth, he says, quote, Obama said this. A light will shine through that window. A beam of light will come down upon you. You will experience an epiphany. An epiphany is like this. You come to this realization, almost a spiritual uh, type of revelation that, that happens to you. It's an epiphany. And it's always like some type of radical, uh, cataclysmic change of mind. So usually, uh, the connotation is usually toward the right way of thinking. Okay, but you will experience an epiphany. You will suddenly realize that you must go to the polls and vote for Obama. While this statement sounds like mind control at work, it does contain several key messianic elements to which we must pay attention. The light will shine through the window. A beam of light will come down upon you. You will experience an epiphany. Now here's the mind control clincher. You will suddenly realize that you must go to the polls and vote for Obama. Some important people have felt a strange, unexplainable power emanating from this senator. Uh, and again, that one guy that talked about the thrill going up his leg. <laughs> okay, whatever. And then um, columnist Mark Mulford of the San Francisco Chronicle says that Obama has charisma that goes beyond his youthful vigor and handsomeness. Okay. Uh, or his inspiring rhetoric. Bill Clinton, with all his effortless winking charm. Please, give me a break. Are these guys like these or something? I mean, my word. His effortless winking charm? Then he says, um, this is a quote from this guy, he didn't have what Obama has, though, which is this sort of powerful luminosity, a unique high vibrational integrity. Gladnick said, oh yeah, he's got such integrity, he won't even verify and produce a real birth certificate. He can't do that. He's blocked every single effort of that Berg lawsuit. It's still being blocked. He will not cooperate them in any faction, way, shape, or form because he knows he is totally above the law because he is the Illuminati's anointed one and he doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to appease the little, do anything of that nature. Uh, then uh, he says, D dismiss it all you like. This is this Gladnick guy um, who is, let's see, uh, he's one of these reporters, I guess. Uh, he says, dismiss it all you like, but I've heard from too many enormously smart, wise, spiritually attuned uh, 
people who've been intuitively blown away by Obama's presence. Not speeches, not policies, but sheer presence. To say it's just a clever marketing ploy, a slick gambit carefully orchestrated by a hotshot campaigner's organizers, once Obama gets in office, will suddenly turn from perky optimists to vile, soul-sucking lobbyist whores, with Obama as their sudden evil tackling overlord. Okay, so he kind of gets wacky there toward the end. And then another quote. Um, World Daily Net also reports when talk radio host Rush Limbaugh criticizes Democrats who are comparing Obama to Jesus and Governor Sarah, Sarah Palin to Pontius Pilate. Uh, Limbaugh says, I know Jesus Christ. I pray to Jesus Christ all the time. Said Limbaugh, please. I mean, this is just another cog of the controlled media. Then he says, I study what Jesus Christ did and said all the time. And let me tell you something, Barack Obama, you are no Jesus Christ. And then he, Limbaugh, also attacked Obama's stances on abortion and sex education for children in kindergarten, which is true. He he wants to advocate sex education for kindergartners. Um, I've seen the quotes. I've sent it out on my email list. And then he says, I can't find any such reference to Jesus promoting infanticide, nor do I find any references to Jesus Christ suggesting sex education taught to four or five-year-olds. Uh, but I'm still looking in the New Testament. I'll let you know if I come up with anything. That's That's Limbaugh. So, in fact, Obama's campaign strategists are using biblical references all the time. Democrats, including party strategist Donna Brazil and Representative Steve Cohen of Tennessee, made nearly identical biblical comparisons of the characters in this presidential election. Limbaugh traced back to a September 4th posting of the Washington, ba- Washington blog, Barack Obama was a community organizer like Jesus. Cohen said during a one-minute speech on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives, so there's no doubt whatsoever that the Democratic Party chieftains have chosen Barack Obama to run a messianic-type campaign for president. There's also no doubt whatever that many mass media uh, commentators have adopted this mantra. And no doubt that increasing the numbers of Americans are viewing him in this light also. However, and we said all that to say this, however, can he be the Antichrist? The Bible is very explicit as to the requirements of Antichrist. So all this opinion doesn't really matter. All we've got to do is compare this to the Bible. Number one, the Antichrist's original emphasis will be primarily Israeli Jewish, okay, Israelite Jewish. The Antichrist must deceive the Jewish people into accepting his claims to be the Jewish Messiah. Therefore, he must be able to prove his lineage back to King David. Listen to the prophecy, Isaiah 9-7. Of the increase of his government and the peace, and peace there shall be no end, this is the coming Messiah, upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And that was Isaiah 9-7. God foretold that the true Jewish Messiah would be able to produce a genealogy which runs back to King David. this reason, Matthew 1 exists. Now I'm going <laughs> to... I disagree. and I'm going I'm to tell you why I disagree with Matthew 1 and why I believe it's Luke 3. It's very obvious. But I wanted to say that because it's going to be a segue into the next part of this very, very interesting part of the study. Matthew 1 uh, exists in our Bible for it proves Jesus' genealogy back to King David. That's wrong. Matthew 1 is the genealogy of Joseph. Just check it. Well, Joseph wasn't his real father. That's true. His father was Father God in heaven. Mary is the only carnal bloodline For Jesus. And that's in Luke 3. We get Mary's lineage and genealogy. 
So let's go to this study right now because I think it's very important to establish this fact right off the bat. Because it does, and I've been, I've been waiting to do this study for a long time, and this was the perfect segue into this. I had a, a, a Christian sister email me this a little while back, and I looked at it, and I was, and it's so obvious. I mean, this isn't something that really is, I believe, it, it is controversial, but when you start to compare scripture to scripture, it's really um, not controversial at all. This is a combination of articles uh, by Dr. Henrietta Mears, Guy Kramer, and there's one other man that writes into this also. And it's entitled, Why uh, Jesus Christ Dueling Genealogies. Why are there two different genealogies for Jesus listed in the Bible? In Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Part of the answer solves another prophecy. Now this is so cool, because this confirms the Bible. This does not cast doubt on the Bible. Let me Let me say that right up front. Okay, but there's a reason why Joseph's genealogy is given in Matthew 1. And we're going to be looking at that. Uh, so the skeptic asks, this is what the skeptic asks, the New Testament gives a detailed line of descent for Jesus, demonstrating that Jesus was born of the line of King David. This is done to meet the prophetic requirements of the Messiah being an heir to the house of David that we just read. It is unfortunate that the writer traces Jesus' descent from David through Joseph, Joseph isn't the father if we are to believe the story of the virgin birth. That's what the skeptic says now. Okay, Good point. Well, then let's address that point head on. In the genealogy of Matthew 1, notice one name, Jeconias. Jeconias is in verse 11. So let's all turn to Matthew 1. Ah, this is such a cool study. Okay, so Matthew chapter 1, verse 11. And Josias beget Jeconias and his brethren about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. Okay? If Joseph had been Jesus' father according to the flesh, he could have never have occupied the throne for God's word barred the way. And look at this, okay? There has been a curse on this royal line since the days of Jeconiah. Okay? Solomon didn't help either, okay, because of all the shenanigans he pulled. Jeconias was in Solomon's line. Now remember, David had more than one son. Remember that. David had more than one son. Wasn't like, it, in order to go through the throne of David, David had several sons. We're going to look at the son that actually, um, that on the line of Mary that it went through. Okay? So, in Jeremiah 22, 24 through 30, and let's just go there right now. Jeremiah 22, Okay, they, and in this particular thing, they only give verse 30, but I want to read the whole thing so you have the full context here. So, so Jeremiah 22, starting at verse 24, we're going to go to verse 30, which is the end of the chapter. As I live, saith the Lord, through Konah, the son of Jeconiakim, king of Judah, where the signet upon my right hand, yet I would pluck thee thence. And I will give thee unto the hand of them that seek thy life, and into the hand of them whose face thou fearest, and even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Remember, this is, the, this is when they were carried away into Babylon. This was right on the cusp of that. And the hand of the Chaldeans. I will cast thee out, and thy mother that bare thee unto another country, where ye were yet not born, and there ye shall die, meaning the, the Babylonian captivity. But to the land whereunto they desire to return, thither they shall not return. They're not going to come back to Israel. Okay, is what he's saying here. Is this man Kona a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein no pleasure? Wherefore they are cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into the land which they know not? O earth, earth, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this, 
man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting under the throne of David and the ruling any more of Judah. Okay, so they only give this one verse in this particular study that I'm doing here. And so let's, let's look at this. Let's break this down. We're going to go back now to Matthew 1. Okay, now the person that they're in reference to here when we started in chap, in verse 24, it says, As I live, saith the Lord, through Kona the son of Jecoim. Okay, now, Kona. Kona is meaning is contracted from the word Jeconiah. Okay, this is Jeconiah that they're in reference to here. This is the same Jeconiah that in verse 11 of Matthew 1 where he said, And Josias beget Jeconias, okay, and his brethren. This is pronouncing a curse on that line. Okay, from, from Jeremiah 24, accumulating in verse 30, where it says, Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. In other words, what this man had done had kind of led up to the whole Babylonian captivity. Okay? A man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper. No man of the seed of Jeconiah shall prosper, but that's the lineage given in chapter 1 of Matthew. For who? Joseph. He wasn't, but he wasn't any blood relative to Jesus Christ. He was the man that helped Mary raised Jesus, but he was not his true father, who was the father God in heaven. Okay? So this is the difference here. Okay? So write this man childless, this is Jeconias, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper. Sitting upon the throne of David. Whoa! Sitting upon the throne of David. Well, if that was Jesus' true lineage, he would have been disqualified from fulfilling the prophecy that we read in, I, or earlier in, I believe it was Isaiah 9-7, how he's going to come from the, the uh, throne of David. He couldn't come through this line, through Jeconias' line. And I don't think it would have been really proper for him to come through Solomon's line either, considering how David, you know, beget Solomon through, you know, Bathsheba and the whole nine yards there with all that, you know, the murder of Uzziah the Hittite and this, these types of things too. That wasn't really helping matters either. Okay, so, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David, and ruling any more in Judah. That was Jesus' true lineage bloodline. Through Mary, he would have been disqualified right there, then and there. But, that wasn't the case. Now, there is a reason, though, that they give Joseph's line, and, and it's, we're gonna see that it's not, not a bad thing. It's actually a confirming thing to Scripture. But again, this is something where we really have to compare Scripture with Scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept. Let's go further. But we find another genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3. This is Mary's line, though. Back to David, through Nathan. Oh, who was Nathan? He was another son of David. Ah, neato. So, not Jeconiah but actually through um, Nathan, because Nathan's line didn't go through Jeconiah. That was Solomon's line that continued through Jeconiah. Nathan's line was totally separate and different. There was no curse on this line. So let's go ahead, let's go to Luke, um, go to Luke 1, 30 through 33. Okay, so we're talking about Luke 1, 30 through 33, and the angel said unto her, Mary, fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Now remember, if 
Mary's line, which is the only literal bloodline related to Jesus, because she bore him, okay, Joseph didn't have anything to do with that, okay? If Mary's line came up through Jeconias' side, he was disqualified from being on the throne because Jeconias had incurred a curse, and it said he would never rule on the throne of David. said it right there in Jeremiah that we just read. So, the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. That's pretty neat. So let's go to Luke 3 now. Luke 3. Genealogy of Mary, mother of Jesus, verse 23. Luke 3. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Okay? He wasn't the birth son of Joseph. Okay? But more like, in a way, kind of an adopted son, if you think about it, because he wasn't his real real father, okay? And then it goes on to give the genealogy here of Mary, okay? Which is a totally different line. This line goes through Nathan, which was a son of David. The The line in um, Matthew 1, and I'll just give you that, goes through Solomon, okay? So Matthew 1 is a totally different line, yet it still goes through David, but that's not the line that you want to go through if you're going to be the true king and represent yourself to be, you know. So again, it says in verse 7 of Matthew 1, And Solomon begat Reboam, Reboam begat Abia, and Abia begat Asa. Okay, so again, this is where we, we get the line of Solomon's continuation, and then, and then you get to uh, Jeconias in verse 11 that we already talked about. Okay, so it's, it's again, it's very, very important that you make that distinction here. So let's continue further. In Matthew 1, 1 through 17, we have the royal genealogy of the son of David. Okay? Through Joseph. Okay? In Luke 3, 23 through 38, now that's through Joseph, Jesus' uh, I guess you call him a stepdad. Okay? In Luke 3, 23 through 38, is a highly, it is a strictly personal genealogy through Mary. Okay. In Matthew, it is his legal line of descent through Joseph. In Luke, it is his lineal, really bloodline descent through Mary. In Matthew, his genealogy is traced forward from Abraham. In Luke, it is followed backward to Adam. Each is significant. And again, neither is bad, and we're going to explain the, this, you know, in, a, in very shortly. Matthew is showing Jesus' relation to the Jew. Hence, he goes back no further than to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nations. But in Luke, his connection with the human race, humanity, because he came to save us all. He came to save humanity. Okay, He didn't just come to save the Jews. He came to his own, and his own received him not. He did come initially to the Jews. Okay, But reality is, is he came to save all humanity. Okay, It's his will that not one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So, But in Luke, his connection with the human race, hence his genealogy, is traced back to Adam, father of the human race. Okay, So, in Luke, Jesus' line is traced back to Adam and is no doubt his mother's line. Notice in Luke 23, it does not say that Jesus was the son of Joseph. What are his words? Okay, so let's read that. Uh, Luke 3.23, let's see here. Okay, uh, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed son of Joseph. They were supposing this because nobody could comprehend the fact that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, 
and impregnated her essentially via father God, nobody could understand that. So as was supposed, that's why that's in there. Do you understand now why little words like that are so important? And you know why the Bible talks about every jot or tittle and these types of things? And why they're so important and when you start corrupting the word of God and removing and adding to your your plane with really big fire here that you don't want to be playing with, as was supposed, are the words there. Now in Matthew 1.16 where Joseph's genealogy is given, we find that Joseph was the son of Jacob. Luke, it is said he was the son of Hel- uh, Heli. He could not be the son of two men by natural Generation, But notice this carefully. The record does not say that Heli begot Joseph, so that it is supposed that Joseph was the son-in-law of Heli. Heli is believed to have been the father of Mary. Now, I'm going to include this study with, I'm just going to really hit the high points for, for time's sake here, but if you want to look into this further, I'll include the study with the PDF file that goes along with this. Because some of this you, you, really, you really do have to look at very, very closely to totally fully understand here. Okay. Now, Jesus Christ's Davidic, meaning the, his genealogy from David, goes through Nathan, not Solomon. Okay, This is very important. The Messiah must be David's son and heir. Okay, so, and again, this is the Messiah that the Bible predicts and the Jews you know, have supposedly been waiting for here. So now, let's go to uh, 2 Samuel 7.12. Okay, so in order to understand the full concept of this verse in Second uh, Samuel seven verse twelve and thirteen, we need to look at verses four and five first. So Second Samuel uh, seven, and it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, "Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord: Thou shalt build me in house, uh, shall thou build for me a house to dwell in?" Now let's just go further, and then it says in verse twelve, "And when thy days be fulfilled, meaning David's days." And thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and I will set up thy seed after thee. Okay, David's seed is going to be set up after him. This is God speaking through Nathan, Nathan the prophet, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so, and this is just one more of the messianic uh, prophecies that the Jews have been have been waiting for. Uh, if we go to Romans 1.3, Romans 1.3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so again, we have this Davidic type um, interlinking here that we're looking at here. Now, Acts 2, verse 30, Acts 2, verse 30, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruits of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seen before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did either his flesh did see corruption. So again, these are just some of the prophecies that we can look at here. Um, biblical confirmation. So, the Messiah must be David's son and heir. And we also looked at that verse in Isaiah before. And his seed according to the flesh. He must be a literal flesh and blood descendant. Hence, Mary must be a member of David's house. And, logically speaking, of an uncursed line that proceeded from David, okay, 
but it must be of an uncursed line. Jeconias, obviously we see God pronounces that judgment on him in Jeremiah, where it says, you know, not, nobody that proceeds from this line uh, will, will sit on the throne of David. Okay, so it cannot be from that line. Also, then you have Solomon being in the mix, and I don't think that helps matters either. So, uh, if we go to Luke one thirty-two. And again, Luke, just to reiterate, he shall be great, meaning Jesus Christ, he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Okay, but it's, again, it's going to have to come the biblical way, um, not just any any old way. Now, I, again, I'm going to post this whole article for further confirmation, but now I'm going to move on to a, the next part of this study. So as mentioned before, the spirit in genealogies, the split in genealogies, happens with David's sons. Matthew lists the line of Joseph as coming through Solomon via um, Jeconias. Luke lists the line through Nathan, who was another son of David. Okay? And that's the sign, that's the side that Mary came from. Okay? Now, in 2 Samuel 5, 13-14, we read from the KJV, let's, uh, well, what that does is that gives us his sons, okay? And it lists, in 2 Samuel 5, 13 and 14, it lists the sons, Nathan, Solomon, Shamua, Shabab, okay, it lists these sons. So we know that, 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 okay, he's got different sons, so there's different ways we can get to the throne of David, in other words, okay? So we know that David, Nathan was David's son. If we turn to Zechariah 12 through 14, we read in this Old Testament prophecy, a book, uh, book, a prophecy who will mourn for the Messiah when he is pierced. So let's go back. We were just in Zechariah. We're going to go back there again. Kind of cool. This A lot of this study relates to itself. I'm going to go back and forth here. Zechariah 12, 12. And the land shall mourn every family apart. Now remember, this is just after they talk about, they shall look upon whom me they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his own son. This is when, collectively, the one-third remnant that's getting their eyes open of the Jews, of the, of the faithful remnant, is going to get their eyes open, and they are going to look upon whom they have pierced, Jesus Christ, and they are going to collectively mourn for him, as they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his own son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. That's in verse 10, Zechariah 12, 10. Uh, and then it goes on to say, In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. It goes on then to say in verse 12, The land shall mourn, every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and the wives apart, and the family of the house of Nathan apart. Hmm, which side did Mary's line come through? Nathan. Wow. And their wives apart, and the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, and the family of Shemiah apart, and their wives apart, and all families that remain, every apart, and the wives apart. Okay, so, it turns out that the Pierce Messiah is not the only prophecy in these passages. If we go back to the genealogy, now let's go back to Luke 3. Now I understand we're, we're flipping around a lot in scripture, but I'm really trying to Present a, they, they did the job for me, but just to present a strong case here of what we're talking about. Because really, when you look at the facts, it's not really complicated. You just kind of have to look at a whole bunch of different verses to fully comprehend this. Uh, Luke 3.26, uh, which was the son of Maeth. Now, this is the genealogy through Mary, okay? Son of Maeth, which was the son of Matthias, which was the son of Semei. Hmm, Semei. Didn't we just read about Semei in, in uh, Zechariah? Hmm, let's, I'm just turning back. Zechariah 12, that one verse. Huh. 
watching him? Yeah. Verse 13. Zechariah 12, 13. And the family of the house of Levi apart. And now these are the ones that they're specifically mentioning are going to mourn for Jesus Christ whom they have pierced. Now remember, two-thirds of the Jews are going to die. One-third is going to come through as a faithful remnant. They're going to be tried through the fire. But the family of the house of Levi apart, now that would make sense because the Levites were the priesthood of, um, and, and they were, they were more of a blessed tribe because of the way they handled the situation of the golden calf when Moses came off the mount. And they didn't worship the golden calf. Okay? So this is one of the reasons, I believe the main reason that they were appointed under the Levitical priesthood. Okay? So again, if you were looking at the tribes that would get their eyes open, that would be a more of a likely candidate. Okay? So the house of the Levi apart and their wives apart in the, in the family of Shemei apart, and their wives apart. So it mentions Shemei here in verse 13, and it also mentions Shemei in verse 26, and it says, uh, which was the son of Shemei, and the son of Joseph, which was the son of Judah. Okay, so they're mentioned there. Now, let's go to verse 29 of Luke 3, 29, and it says, which was the son of Josie, which was the son of Eleazar, which was the son of Joram, which was the son of Mathat, which was also the son of Levi, so now we've got Levi in her lineage as well. Okay? Now let's go further. So we've got Shemei, Levi. These are the same, two of the same tribes, two of the same groups of people, Jewish people listed in Zechariah that are going to mourn for Jesus Christ, whom they've pierced. They're going to finally get their eyes open. Just an interesting parallel here. Okay? Now let's go to verse 31. Verse 31, which was the son of Melii, which was the son of Manan, which was the son of Mattah, which was the son of Nathan, David. That is Mary's line. Okay? All four of those tribes, okay, let's look at who they mention in Zechariah, who are going to be the ones that are mourning for Jesus when they finally realize whom they've pierced. The land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart. Whoa! Nathan David, and then it says it gets even better. The family of the house of Levi, apart, and the family of the house of Shimei, apart. Every single one of these group family group members in the Jewish lineage is listed in Mary's genealogy, which is the only direct bloodline to Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. That's enough to make a Presbyterian run the aisles. If that don't get you fired up, your wood's wet. Sorry. I, I got a little um, independent fundamental Baptist on you there. That uh, was kind of from my elder days. Anyway, um... So if we, I mean, I just think that is so cool. That is just like, man, I mean, you're just, you got to do some serious, serious searching out the word to find this stuff. And they did it. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. They did it, man. I think that is so cool. But anyway, so we find four, all four of these same names in proper order in her genealogy. It's also the one listed in in Zechariah uh, 12. This doesn't mean that the names are actually immediately after one another in her genealogy, though. It doesn't have to mean that at all, but they are in the genealogy, okay? But if we look at the first two names in Zechariah, David and Nathan, we do find they are one after another in Luke 3. Well, it has to be because David beget Nathan, okay? I just think it's so cool that they're in both things that are talked about here. And this has to do with the Jews ultimately getting their eyes open, and it was the same lineage that Jesus came through. I just think that is so awesome. But anyway, um, the next name in Zechariah is Levi. 
we begin at David and then Nathan, we have to skip nine names until we run into Levi. If we skip 17, ahead 17 more names, we find Levi, we find Semei. The Hebrew name in Zechariah 12 is Shimei, S-H-I-M-E-I. This is the same Hebrew name in the Greek New Testament would be translated as Semei. That's why there's a little bit different spelling there. So if you're wondering about the spelling, just like when we talked about in Jeremiah where it was talked about Konia, and that's, that's actually translated Jeconias. So you have to, you have to, um, have to allow for the the, the uh, translations as well, okay? So I just wanted to, to talk about that, just touch on that, because you would say, well, it's not the same name. Well, actually, it is the same name. But when you go from Hebrew to Greek, sometimes the name, some of the letters get changed, okay? Like it talks about, as it was in the days of Noe, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Well, how is it listed in the Old Testament? Noah, N-O-N-O-A-H. Noe N-O-E is the way many times it's listed in the New Testament. You could say, oh, it's just two different guys. No, it's not. It's the same person. So you have to understand that as well. So anyway, just a little lighthearted study here. Um, so if we go further, Zechariah picked four names in correct order from the bloodline of the Messiah 500 years before Jesus was born. Now remember, this was 500 years before Jesus was born when Zechariah was written. Zechariah knew from other prophecies the Messiah was to come from the line of David. In 1 Chronicles 3, 1 through 9, we find that David had at least 15 sons. Okay? So Zechariah correctly picked the name of Nathan, one out of 15, but he did it correctly. Why? Because he was a true prophet of God. He's not like these ones running around saying, oh, bless God, I'm, I'm Apostle Pete and Prophet Paul. And they get their prophecies wrong most of the time. And yet they still call themselves a prophet. They should be calling themselves, I'm, I'm false, apo- I'm false uh, Apostle Paul or I'm false prophet you know, whatever. Because they've they've disqualified themselves, in other words, by their own actions. So Zechariah correctly picked Nathan as the line in which the Messiah would come. He also correctly picked the names Levi and Shimei, or Semei, to be part of this line of this prophecy. What are the odds of that? <laughs> I just think this is so neat. The skeptic has his answer. Now, let's go further, because we're not done here. There's this thing called the lineage loophole. This guy wrote this. His name is Phil Luna. And it says that Mary... um, (laughs) This is so awesome. Mary should be disqualified to transfer the rights of her lineage to her son Jesus. Except, except for a little known biblical exception to this rule that God ordained. Oh, I love it. In Matthew 1, 1 through 16, and Luke 3, 23 through 38, we are presented with two genealogies of Jesus Christ. Well, really, one of them is not really of Jesus Christ. One of them is of Jesus Christ, I guess you call him stepdad, Joseph. The other one is of Jesus Christ's earthly mother, okay, Mary. On the surface, these different listings would appear to be a contradiction in the scriptures, but really not. The genealogy found in Matthew's Gospel is the lineage of Jesus' earthly stepdad, Joseph, while the genealogy found in Luke's Gospel is the lineage of, Jesus, um, of Mary. Okay, we've already discussed that. However, many of the people that teach these genealogies fail to realize or address a major problem associated with the genealogical listing found in Luke, which would be Mary's. The lineage of Mary, once you have established that the line of Mary is... Um, is indeed Mary's, then you must deal with the second difficulty, which is the rights of line 
are not passed through the mother, only through the father. This is the patriarchal thing. That, that when you give the lineage and genealogies in the Jewish thing, it's a patriarchal line. So now we've got this problem. We're going to solve it. Don't worry. We're going to solve it. Even though Mary, well, the Bible solves it for you. Even though Mary, through her lineage, was of the Davidic bloodline, she should be excluded from being able, and this is what the skeptic would say, she should be excluded to be able to pass those rights on to the bloodline because she's a female, according to Deuteronomy 21.16. So it is not enough to prove Mary was an unblemished descendant of David. She had to be a male to transfer the rights, we would think. Therefore, she would be disqualified to transfer the rights to her son Jesus, except for a little-known exception to this rule. In Numbers 26, we are introduced to Zelophehad. Zelophehad, we are told, had no sons, only daughters. Numbers 27 Following the death of Zelophead, the daughters of Zelophead came before Moses and argued their plight, because their father had died with no sons, and all the rights of inheritance were to be lost, and they felt this was unfair. I mean, I can understand that. You can understand that. So Moses prayed to God and gave, and God gave Moses an exception to the rule. <laughs> Man, let's go to Numbers twenty-seven six through eleven. Okay, so Numbers twenty-seven six through eleven. 27, 6 through 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses. Now this was when God himself was giving Moses the exception to the rule. The daughters of Zelophehad speak right. God was agreeing with them. Wasn't fair. Thou shalt surely give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brethren, and thou shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a man die... And have no son, then she, you shall cause his inheritance to pass unto his daughter. This is how inheritance could be actually transferred if there were no sons to a daughter. And then he goes on to even give more contingency. And if he have no daughter, then you shall give the inheritance unto the brethren. And if you have no brethren, then she'll give inheritance unto the father's brethren. In other words, God was making sure this was totally fair, this process. Okay, They weren't punished because the guy had no sons. Okay, or the guy died, all he had was girls. Well, that's, that's God's doing. God's the one that picks who, if he has a boy or girl, as far as, you know. So, um, this was the exception of the rule that God himself gave to Moses. Okay, now, the Lord told Moses that the inheritance can flow through a female. If they fulfill two requirements, there must be no male offspring in the family. Now, that's indicated in number 27, Numbers 27, verse 8, which we just read, where it says, If thou shalt speak unto the children, if a man die and have no son, if a man die and have no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass unto his daughter. Okay, So that was the first requirement. And also the second requirement was if the female offering offspring should marry, then they must marry within their own tribe. In order to pass on inheritance, they have to have you know, no other sons. And if that female is to marry, she must marry in her own tribe. Now remember this closely because Joseph was of the same tribe as Mary. That's how it all works. So I'm kind of giving it away here, but let's go to Numbers 36 6. So Numbers 36 6, where we're going to get confirmation of this now. Uh, and it says. And this thing which the Lord doth, 
doth command concerning the daughters of Zelophead, which is what we're talking about here, going ahead two chapters, saying, Let them marry to whom they think best. Only to the family of the tribe of their father shall they marry. So in other words, in order to do it God's way under this Levitical thing that we're dealing with here, okay, God set two examples. There can't be any other sons, and if the and if the inheritance then will pass to the daughters, but if the daughters marry, they gotta keep it within their own tribe in order for this inheritance thing to be passed properly. Okay, and biblically speaking. So that's what they've got to do. And then it says so shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe. In other words, he was doing this because he didn't want the inheritance to move from tribe to tribe in this particular instance. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter that possesseth an inheritance of any tribe of the children of Israel shall be a wife unto unto one of the family of the tribe of her father. I think it was a way of kind of the, the woman honoring the father by marrying within the same tribe. And that was part of the deal. Now, that's God's doing. This was just something that he mandated. But this is very fair, okay? Um, so that the children of Israel may enjoy every man the inheritance of his fathers. And the inheritance didn't move out of the tribe. Mary fulfilled that when she married Joseph. because he was. A, she knew this. They knew this. <laughs> So if we go further, it says, now we come back to Mary. On the surface, she should be unable to transfer the rights to her son. But when you research, when you research, you find that Mary had no brothers. And Mary did indeed marry within her own tribe to Joseph. What an awesome God that we serve that set in order the requirements to allow the virgin birth to take place, 1400 years of advance, and to allow the proper transition and this whole confirmation of this inheritance and the genealogy and the bloodline. So, then we have the last little article and it's entitled, Did Mary Have Any Brothers? by this guy named Guy Kramer. And it says, after reading the detailed information uh, that we just got into, I asked Phil if he knew of any information on Mary's brothers. He cited numerous non-canonical works such as Catholic Encyclopedia, the Apocryphal Books, the Proto-Evangelism of James, uh, and tradition does state that Mary had no brothers, okay? Curious, I went through the four Gospels looking for any reference to collaborate Phil's references, because obviously we want to get biblical confirmation, if at all possible. So, in John nineteen twenty-five through 27 we read, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus' mother and his mother's sisters, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother... Man, this is so awesome. When Mary... <laughs> When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which was John, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, John, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Ooh, man, this is getting me fired up even reading this. We see from this passage that Mary did have a sister because the... the and his mother it says Jesus' mother and his mother's sister. It says that right in, in um, verse 25, John 19. Jesus is not saying to his mother, look at me on the cross with the statement, woman, behold your son. He's not saying that. Jesus is telling his mother that John, who was the only disciple at the cross, is going to care for her. Jesus is also telling John that he must care for Mary. We must acknowledge that Joseph, Jesus' father, had probably died since we see no references to Joseph after Jesus was 12 years old. Just check Luke 
2, 41 through 52. We don't see any references to Joseph. So, in other words, he wasn't in the picture anymore. So he couldn't take care of Mary. To understand why Jesus is telling John to care for Mary, we must understand the Jewish culture at that time. When a woman with children was widowed, she would move back in with her father or brother. If her father had also died and there were no brothers, then one of her sons was to care for her. In this case, Jesus was the eldest son of Mary. How do we know that? Because she was a virgin birth. He was the first son. Okay? So, Jesus was the eldest son of Mary and was probably supporting her at this time because her, her, her dad was dead, her husband was dead, she didn't have any brothers. So, Jesus was the one that would actually mandate, you know, this is your son. He was the eldest son taking care of Mary at the time. So, as the eldest son on the cross, here he's going to, you know, he's given his, his life to save humanity, to, to pay our sin debt. He still had some unfinished business. He passes the responsibility of taking care of Mary to John, one of his disciples, who is not an actual literal flesh and blood son of Mary, but he's still passing that responsibility on because there was no one else at that time. Or evidently, this is the one Jesus deemed fit. From the comments of Jesus, we can extrapolate that Jesus was caring for Mary, which means that Mary had no brothers. Taken with the extra-biblical literature that Mary had no brothers, we can assume that she passed the first prerequisite that God had given as law in Numbers 27.8, which is where we go back to the qualifications here when there's no sons. Okay, so let me read that again. From the comments of Jesus, we can extrapolate that Jesus was caring for Mary, which means that Mary had no brothers. Her dad was dead. We, most likely Joseph was not in the picture. Okay, taken with this extra biblical literature that Mary had no brothers, we can assume that she passed the first prerequisite that God had given as law in Numbers 27, verse 8, which, and again, I'll just reiterate that, Numbers 27, verse 8, where it says, And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a man die and have no son, then shall ye cause his inheritance to pass unto his daughter. Now we see the reason for the two different genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Not only do we see Joseph's line in Matthew 1, but also Mary's line in Luke 3. Both these genealogies show that both Mary and Joseph came from the same tribe of Judah, fulfilling the second requirement of the law in Numbers 36.6. And again, we've read that, but I'll just re I'll reiterate it. And this thing which the Lord doth command concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry to whom they think best, only to the family of the tribe of their father shall they marry. They did that. Mary did that with Joseph. Okay? So, Joseph came from the same tribe of Judah. Remember Jesus Christ, the line of the tribe of Judah? There's another confirmation for you. Okay? So, Joseph came from the same tribe of Judah, fulfilling the second requirement of the law, Numbers 36, 36. So the reason for God placing two genealogies is to show that Jesus, being a virgin birth, came from Mary's line, which was not cursed, as was Joseph's, but they were still through David and still of the same tribe, so we still were fulfilling all the biblical, the, the uh, biblical tenets here. Also is to show that both Mary and Joseph come from the same line, which was a legal necessity if Jesus was to claim Mary's line and not Joseph's was a cursed line. But see, Joseph wasn't a blood relation to Jesus Christ because he had no earthly father.
We find that on the surface the Bible can be simple enough to understand, but the complexity we are discovering in which it was written is absolutely, totally astonishing. That, I think, was one of the coolest things I have ever read in my life. That was one of the coolest Bible studies that I believe the Lord has ever shown me. But anyway, I, I know that's kind of a rabbit trail we got off on today, but we're, we're looking at the lineage of Jesus Christ and the confirming aspect of it, and we're looking at the things that the Antichrist is um, going to try to fulfill here. And again, um, the Jews will insist that this newly arisen Masonic Christ produce a lineage which proves his genealogy back to King David. But I would almost guarantee you, this lineage is going to go through Solomon when it comes to the Antichrist. It's going to go through Solomon. Just look at how the Freemasons are so obsessed with Solomon and his temple and the rebuilding of that temple. The Masons are as obsessed with it as the religious Jews. Okay? Now we're going to be talking about that subject in the coming weeks, about Solomon, okay, and how that relates into this. Uh, so he goes on to say, how is a Masonic Christ arising out of the revived Roman Empire, which is like Europe and, Europe and Great Britain, going to produce his lineage back to Solomon and King David? Okay, now... We're going to be going into that next week. We're going to be talking about the Merovingian bloodline and that. Because, see, there's a lot of facets to this study on the Antichrist that, um, you know, I guess it's one of the reasons I've never done the study. Because it's a lot. If you really want to cover it thoroughly, there's a lot you got to go over. And so, I don't know how long this is going to take, but I thought that was kind of a, you know, a foundational thing we needed to establish right off the bat, okay? So, I'm going to go ahead and close it out here and... and um, We'll pick up next week. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the time that you've given us. We praise you, Lord God, for your goodness, for your word, Lord, and, and how the word of God, when studied and rightly divided, just comes alive. And it's so amazing and cross-confirming and all the prophecies that have been fulfilled. And, and just, you know, as, as the Bible says, thy word is truth. We praise you for it. There's not another book like it ever that's ever been written. And we praise you for your word. And I know that for um, uh, for a lot of people, even in today's day and age, they may not even have a Bible. And I pray, God, for, for your remnant and that you do provide them with the true word of God and that you protect them and that your angels would encamp around about them. And Lord God, that you would bless and protect the poor and the widows and the weak and the, and the orphans and the unborn babies in the womb, Lord, and the little ones, Lord, and that... Um, those that are not saved, that you would save them at the earliest possible age, Father God. In the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, your angelic host, and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the Word of God, and the sword of the Spirit, um, Lord, we just praise you and we thank you. We need you, Lord, I pray, God, that you forgive us for any and all sins we've committed in any way, shape, or form that you would cleanse us from presumptuous sins and secret faults, that they would not have dominion over us, and that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, that you would prepare us for the battles and the days to come, that we would uh, you know, put on the robe of righteousness, Lord God, and, and, and that you would anoint our eyes, our eyes with eyesight that we could see, Lord, and that we would buy from the white raiment, Lord God, that we would not be naked before you, as your, as your Bible warns in Revelation 3. And I just pray... Lord God, all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.